Thanks to you, our listeners, KRBN Internet News Talk Radio is growing and is now available on more stations such as Facebook Video, Player.fm, iTunes, Verbal, and now on Amazon Audible. KRBN Internet News Talk Radio currently does not receive any funding to bring you these programs. However, we do ask that you hit that like button and tell your friends to help this station grow. And thank you again for your support. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. And for those of you watching on Facebook Live, that was a cameo appearance by Louie. Um, and uh, we're totally blew my concentration having Louie jump in my lap right before the show. But uh, let's start it again. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bozno Show. <laughs> I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira and the Bozovich Poodle Ranch. Uh, and, you know, um, I put up on my, my promos on Facebook and all that. We had a really eventful 4th of July weekend here around Lane County. And, you know, some of it was was really inspiring, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Some of it was um, controversial, and we'll talk about that after we get to the inspiring part. And some of it was really tragic. Um, and we'll we'll cover all those aspects. And but one of the things I will say, um, I think people heard loud and clear somewhat the whole issue about fire danger and fireworks and everything. It was the quietest Fourth of July in years for me, as far as in my my neighborhood around my house. I did not hear the illegal loud bangs. I did not see a lot of aerial fireworks that are illegal. Did see a few fountains being used here and there, generally on, you know, non-flammable surfaces. Still still not technically legal out where I am because we are in a fire protection area governed by um, ODF and fireworks are actually banned in this area. So, yeah, those folks even using fountains were technically violating, but I think they, they used them safely. So we had a pretty quiet Fourth uh, of July here on, around the Bozovich Poodle Ranch, which is nice because the poodles kind of get a little bit antsy when they start hearing all the fireworks. Um, and I didn't get, you know, no, nothing past 10, 1030, really. I mean, it's amazing how sometimes we just get these uh, um Burst of fireworks really late at night, waking everybody up, uh, and we didn't get that this year. But you know, there were some really nice things that happened on the Fourth of July around the area, and uh, I, I, I want to give Robin a chance to talk a little bit about um, this ride she participated in, uh, a tribute to fallen soldiers, where they actually uh, had a uh, a caravan, a, a police escorted caravan up into Junction City and, and a flyover and all that stuff. But um, 
Robin, tell us a little bit about more about that event because it, it was pretty impressive for something that seemed to be brought together kind of at the last moment. Yeah, it was Jay. It was uh, again. I, I heard about it Saturday morning, and we met over at the uh, um, the Legions out on River Road and caravaned over to 99, where we kind of staged and waited for Junction City Police to show up, and they escorted us um, down to Junction City, where we lined up to where the F-18 flyover was going to be, and it was just such an awesome event, very well coordinated. Uh, Thanks to the Chief of Police and the Air Force for uh, uh, setting this all up and doing the escorts and... uh, and I do have a, I do have a, a video I'd like to kind of uh, or an interview that I did if it's okay to run it. Go ahead. All right. We'll see if this will work. I'm having one of those days, folks. So if it doesn't work, I apologize. <laughs> And back to you in the studio. Thanks, Robin. And, you know, unfortunately, because we're connected through a different uh, modus of of communication, I could not hear what you probably heard on Facebook Live and out through Blog Talk Radio. But it sounds like it was a really fun and inspirational event. And uh, I'm glad, Robin, you got to attend that. I'm glad that Chief Morris there in Junction City helped. Uh, put that together and promote it. Um, he's a, a good guy up there in Junction City, uh, and Junction City in general is you know, really supportive of our our, our vets in our country. You know, they they put the flags out along 99 for uh, the the Lions Club up there for all the, the national holidays. Um, so it's just a really nice community. You know, it's a great community event there that uh, was put on. So. Going from the inspirational and, and involving police somewhat, uh, you know, we're going to go to maybe the controversial. And this weekend, you know, uh, Cresswell normally hosts a Fourth of July parade, and the Fourth of July parade is put on by the Chamber of Commerce, not the City of Cresswell. But the chamber, you know, in the 
you know, throws of the governor's on again, off again restrictions on COVID and everything else decide they weren't going to plan the parade because they didn't know whether they were going to be able to hold one or not. At the time, it was critical for them to kind of make some of those planning decisions. Um, but they did decide they were going to put on the fireworks display later in, in, the, in the day. Um, so a couple organizations started talking about, you know, once the, the governor started lifting restrictions about putting on a parade, um, and there was, you know, some step forward and started a permit process, and then they backed away, you know, different organizers. And towards the tail end, um, a group of um, patriots, as they called themselves, decided to go ahead and put on the parade and um, didn't pull permits. So, uh, and part of that patriot group was representatives of the Proud Boys, which, you know, are not exactly non-controversial um, with some people. And, uh, you know, that that kind of made the whole thing kind of interesting. But it turns out, you know, there were several hundred people ready to start the parade. There were three uh, Lane County Sheriff's Office law enforcement officers, a sergeant and two deputies, that were dealing with the entire town of Cresswell at the time. And this group of probably 200 people getting ready to start a parade. And the crowds lining the parade route that were expecting the normal Cresswell parade. You know, people didn't realize that there was this whole issue about the chamber pulling out and the different group coming in. Uh, and that kind of got to be, you know, sort of an issue because you have 200 people that want to start a parade and you only have three deputies to control that group if they tell them no. Uh, and basically, uh, the, the sergeant in charge there made the decision to inform the folks they were in violation uh, of not getting a permit and all that. And, and if they went ahead, there would probably be uh, citations issued post-parade to the organizers and, and maybe even some of the participants. And they could get, you know, basically municipal violations and fines. And, and they let the parade start. Well, some people are criticizing the sheriff's office for doing that, for allowing the parade to move forward, um, because they kind of saw it as, quote, a white supremacist parade, and, and supposedly, supposedly, but I don't have any evidence of this, that there were white supremacist hand signals flashed during the parade, um, which I'm not even sure what those are, and I don't have any evidence that any were, but that's that's what's going around, you know, social media and stuff, and a lot of criticisms coming down because we didn't stop it. Now, mind you, Eugene Police Department got a lot of criticism um, after the May 30th riot uh, in 2020 for something pretty similar, where they chose not to stop something from happening because they didn't have enough personnel to control the situation in a way that people wouldn't end up getting hurt. Basically, what this sergeant had to, to look at, 200 people, a, quote, patriot group, which they've, they've clearly identified themselves also with the Second Amendment. So you're probably talking about folks that are 
you know, either open carry or concealed carry, probably most likely, and three law enforcement personnel. So think about that for a minute. And remember the Eugene Police Department, you know, that Friday night on May 30th last year when folks started burning stuff in the middle of the street and then started breaking windows in stores, they just did not have a sufficient force for the couple hundred people that were doing the rioting then. And, and it took them a long time to muster enough force to, to actually put an end to that later in the, in, in the night. Um, and that, that's a decision that law enforcement has to make a lot of times. Do you stop something from happening or do you have to let it happen and then make arrests later, which they've made, uh, I think it's, they're up to what, 35 arrests on the May 30th riots? more to come yet so you know we don't know you know how many citations will be issued post the parade etc uh from uh the city of Cresswell um to those parade organizers um but you have to make those sort of decisions at the moment on the ground and i am not going to question a trained law enforcement officer a sergeant, which means a senior trained law enforcement officer, decision to allow a parade to go, which no one was hurt in a parade. There were no injuries. Nothing happened untoward, maybe other than, you know, this this idea that these guys just decided to have a parade and we had to, and, and they got allowed to have it. Um, still doesn't mean they're not going to get cited and fined later. Um, but had they tried to stop that parade, what might have happened then? There were people staging that probably had no idea that there were no permits for the parade. In fact, the lead group was a VFW group that may not have known even that the parade wasn't permitted at the time they decided to gather there. They would have been caught in the middle of whatever melee might have happened had the, had the deputy basically said, you can't enter the street. I'm stopping this parade right here. And mind you, this is a county that normally only has three deputies on duty at any one time covering a four, over 4,000 square mile county. And at the same time, we unfortunately were dealing with a murder in Fall Creek. So all of our available law enforcement staff that wasn't contracted to the city of Cresswell. Those three, the sergeant, the two deputies are contracted directly to the city of Cresswell. Um, all the rest of our force was basically dealing with the murder in Fall Creek. In addition, we called people in off of time off to deal with that. Um, our sheriff and chief deputy actually went into patrol mode to cover for the people that were going to the murder scene. So, you know, we, we didn't have the ability to call people in to help these three guys. There is no availability for backup because we're dealing with a murder. So I, I, I don't quite understand the controversy here. And then I just also have to say, Think about, you know, the, the big thing people are, are upset about was, the, quote, the, the ties to white supremacists and, and allowing them, you know, how it looks by Lane County allowing them to go ahead. 
just think of all the other protests and, and marches and all that have, that have been allowed to move forward without permits around here. And think if we start picking out which ones we're going to stop before they start based on who's protesting and what ties they might have. Do you think maybe we might get into some constitutional trouble? Imagine if it was the NAACP decided to have a Juneteenth parade in Veneta, and, and we tried to stop them before they left their staging area. Do you think maybe we might be cited for trying to stop somebody because of you know who they were and what their message might be? We can't we can't make that decision based on content of the group and, and who the group is. That has to be neutral. The decision should solely be based on life safety issues. You know, yes, they're about to violate a local government's orders to not have a parade because they don't have a permit. But is that worth somebody possibly being injured in doing so? Whether it's, you know, the perpetrators that are holding the illegal parade, whether it's the police officers, law enforcement officers trying to stop the parade, or innocent bystanders like the, the old guys from the VFW that probably had no idea that there was a controversy involved, or the spectators waiting for the parade to start. You have to make those kinds of decisions sometimes. Look what happened in Springfield when they tried to stop a march there. I, I think in that case, they, they were smart to try. The tactics just didn't work out well. There should have been a little bit more training on the officer's part. And even the chief admitted shortly after that he made mistakes of trying to use uh, road barriers in front of the police. He was trying to keep some separation between the crowd and the police. And the, and the crowd just picked up the barriers and used them to push the police, push on the police with them. Uh, uh, but at that point, they were trying to stop a group from entering a major highway and the issues around that. Uh, but there's still lawsuits being filed around that action. And, and the lawsuits are based on things like free speech and discrimination against the, the minorities that were participating in that march by, you know, supposedly white police officers. You know, so just the whole thing was is turning into a, into a bit of a fiasco for the city of Springfield. And um, that was decision made on the ground by law enforcement officers where they thought they had sufficient force and training to take care of that without a lot of risk. Turns out it didn't work out quite that way. Now, I, you know, go back to this show from early June of last year, and I supported the decision of EPD not to stop the riot in the moment, not to try and march in undermanned. Because what happens when you do stuff like that is you force police officers, if they don't have good crowd control, they don't have enough people there to have, you know, to work their way through the various non-lethal methods of controlling a crowd, from chemical methods to, you know, all the various, you know, options available to, to police to try and 
control crowd in non-lethal ways. You leave somebody that's being overwhelmed and isolated as a law enforcement officer by a hostile crowd, their decision matrix elevates into lethal force really fast. You know, if you're one guy surrounded by 10, your pepper spray is not doing much good. Your taser is definitely not doing any good. So what's, what's your next decision level? Pull out your baton and you're starting to, to, to do bodily harm and possible, and possible lethal. And then maybe after that, you're, you're pulling your weapon. So, you know, coming into these situations undermanned in crowd control is a recipe for disaster. Nobody wins. Property is not worth the loss of life. You know, that, that, that's, you know, they even tell you when you're training for concealed weapons, if you go to a decent concealed weapons class where they teach you about the consequences of actually using your concealed weapon, they talk about, you know, if, if you're using your weapon to protect property, you're going to be in a heap of trouble when you get into court. So, yeah, it's just... It's a tough decision, and it was a controversial decision, but I support the sergeant's decision at the moment. And I see Robin's just dying to talk about probably the Springfield portion of this because she lives in that area. <laughs> Can't hear you, Robin. Well, it helps, too, if I open my microphone. It makes a huge difference. It does. Like I said, it's been one of those last couple of days. Um, Springfield Police Department just put this out about three hours ago, and uh, – this is actually good news for a change. Um, Fourth of July uh, activity, July 3rd, Amnesty Day, 127 pounds of fireworks that have been turned in. Um, July 3rd, 13 firework calls. July 4th, 135 firework calls. And they responded to over 47 locations compared to 2020, which was 70 firework calls, and 2019, 79 firework calls, so they did a lot better. Um, there was one DUI arrest and zero DUI crashes. So um, kudos to the community for stepping up to the plate, especially during the high-risk of fire season. Yeah, which brings me to you know getting beyond the controversy of Fourth of July here in Lane County. Brings me to the the tragic, um, speaking of, of, of DUIs, the traffic violations, et cetera, we had a horribly tragic motor vehicle accident on, you know, Friday morning with the ramp up of everybody trying to get out of town. Somebody ran a stop sign while distracted. Uh, one of the side roads coming into Highway 126 hit a vehicle pulling a utility trailer. That vehicle then was pushed into the oncoming traffic, which head-on with another SUV pulling a, um, a trailer, an RV, a RV trailer, which, of course, then smashed in the back of the, the SUV. Um, and unfortunately, the, the gentleman driving the vehicle towing the utility trailer was killed and so was his passenger and everybody else involved in the accident got transported to to uh, peace health 
hospital and, and with some serious injuries. Um, really horrible, bad accident, closed Highway 126 for hours, which you can imagine on Getaway Friday was not, didn't make a lot of people happy. Um, but just, you know, the really sad part is this gentleman that, that lost his life has a wife and children. He was the sole um, earner in the family because his wife has terminal brain cancer. So now, you know, it, it's really left a family in a really dire and bad situation. And, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, we've talked about this on the show before. You know, put the phone down, pay attention. When you're driving, you're driving a lethal weapon. You know, you should have as much awareness while you're driving as you would carrying a loaded gun in your hand. Trigger discipline, where your muzzle's pointed. You know, all those things that you think of when you're carrying a loaded weapon, uh, you know, you should be constantly aware when you're driving. And it, it's sad that that moment's lapse is probably going to ruin you know, the lives of so many people, including the driver that had that lapse. I can't imagine the the trauma and guilt involved if I was that person. Just a, you know, a moment's, you know, mind, you know, not thinking sort of thing and running a stop sign and, and next thing you know you're responsible for killing a couple people, injuring a couple more, and yourself. And um you know it just it would be so difficult to be in that position. But you know the this the really sad part about this is we've been we've known how dangerous Highway one twenty six is. I mean I ran a safety task force back in 2015 where we brought together all sorts of agencies and looked at the highway from Eugene to Mapleton because there had been 10 deaths in the previous 12 months in that stretch. And we, know, and we knew before then how dangerous it was. And, you know, and in fact, there was a corridor study to improve this stretch between Eugene and Benita that was done in 2014. We're just now, you know, after the corridor study was done and approved and we all understood that the, the real thing that needed to be done was the intersections all needed to have improvements done because of the, the, the danger of the turning movements at all the intersections, whether you're rear-ending somebody stopping to make a left turn on the highway or if it was somebody trying to make a left turn from a side street onto the highway, all those things are really dangerous because one traffic moves over the speed limit on that. It's only two lanes wide. There's not a lot of getaway. And and if you're forced in the other lane, you're talking about head-ons. And when you're talking about two cars doing the speed limit at 55, that's a 110 mile an hour impact. You know when those two bodies collide. And one of the things about collisions is the severity of the the, the energy involved in that collision is a function of the square of the speed of the, the the relative speed of the two objects colliding and their mass and a few other things. But you know, speed 
squared. So a collision, you know, it, it doesn't go up in a straight line how bad it is. It actually goes up as a, as a geometric function. So having a collision at 110 is not twice as bad as 55. It's four times worse as far as the impact. So the likelihood of death and, and, and severe injury just really increases with speed. But we had this plan back in 2014 and understood what some of the fixes were, one of which is that road really needs to be four lanes. It, and, the only, and one of the main reasons it needs to be four lanes is it needs a center divider. Between the intersections, there should be something that prevents crossover collisions. Those have been the most deadly collisions on that road. And most of them have been, you know, somebody stopped to make a left turn, somebody didn't pay attention, rear-ended somebody, forced the left-turning car into the opposite lane, and they get head-on. You know, that, that's the sort of thing that happens, has happened there consistently. Every couple years, it seems like we're having a fatality on this stretch of road. 2014, a plan was, was developed with community input and adopted for that corridor. Fast forward to 2021, seven years later, we're still just doing the environmental assessment right now, which really won't be fully completed until the spring of 22. And then we can start the process of going after funding once the, the environmental assessment's approved by the federal government. So the wheels turned slowly, maybe by 20. 25, we might start seeing some construction after a plan developed in 2014. And, you know, it just kind of leads to this whole issue. But And then the real issue is, will we even have the money to do some of these improvements? Which gets me to something I want to talk about. And that's this whole idea of the federal infrastructure bill that's been knocked around. Whether it's the Invest in America Act that was put forward by the House or some of the, the stripped down versions. And now, you know, there's an article in the paper today that, you know, people are trying to tie all sorts of things to the Infrastructure Act. The, the Invest in America Act put a lot of stuff that isn't infrastructure in it. You know, we need to understand Infrastructure is a crisis in America. It has been for years. I've, you know, I'm a civil engineer. I get it. I've been talking about this, you know, at, I was talking about it to the community as an engineer for the Eugene Water Electric Board, trying to explain to people why we had to replace a reservoir, why we had to upgrade a reservoir. I mean, look at, look at the, the controversy happening today over the fact that eWeb wants to build two new reservoirs to replace a reservoir that's from the 30s, basically, which I basically helped try and keep in service. That reservoir during an earthquake fails, by the way. <laughs> and it's the main reservoir for the whole, almost all of Eugene. <laughs> you know, so it's like on College Hill. We, we really need those two reservoirs down south Eugene. I don't care how many Woods, you know, eWeb bought that property years ago, not as a forest. It was a site for reservoirs, and it's always been held in reserve for reservoirs, whether there's trees growing on it or not. Infrastructure, we need to have a bill get through Congress that doesn't put a lot of fluff in it, just 
fund basic infrastructure. There's such a need out there. So much of it's aging out. You know, eWeb's infrastructure is actually in pretty damn good shape because they've got enough of a rate payer base and a good enough engineering staff that they built into their rates renewal and replacement projects and have a master plan and everything else to continue keeping that system up to date. Well, that's one major water water and electric utility can do that. Think about little communities like Mapleton, Oregon, where they're not even an incorporated city. They don't have a city council, they don't have a tax base, but they've got a water district there, which serves about 600 people you know, and 200 households, and um, they've got their own issues down there. You know, over the last couple of years, they had their filtration system completely fail to where they were on a boil water notice for several months. Because it's a small system, they only really can afford one full-time employee, the superintendent that superintendent slash system operator, which, by the way, you have to have years of training to qualify under state law to operate a water system. And you just can't step in and start operating a water system. So the, the labor pool for superintendents is very limited. Well, their superintendent up and quit on them. And, and their meters didn't get read for 10 months. So bills got issued that were, you know, had, had catch up, uh, because they've been getting estimated bills based on, you know, not true meter readings. So people got huge water bills. All that happens because it's a little tiny system. Do you think that system's been able to plan for renewal and replacement? Do you think they might could use some help? How many Mapletons are there in Oregon compared to how many eWebs? Hundreds, if not thousands of small community water systems and sewer systems that are out there that are just in terrible need of some investment. But we've got Congress playing around with things that aren't infrastructure. And if you go to Merriam-Webster, infrastructure is defined in Merriam-Webster as a system of public works of a county, state, or region. And they go on further to say, did you know that infra, that first part of the term infrastructure, means below? So, and this is their words exactly. So infrastructure is the underlying structure of a country and its economy, the fixed installations that it needs in order to function. These include roads, bridges, dams, the water and sewer systems, railways, subways, airports, and harbors. These are generally government-built and publicly owned. Then it goes on to say some would also speak of such things as intellectual infrastructure or the infrastructure of science research, but the meaning of such notions can be extremely vague. In other words, but according to Merriam-Webster and according to almost everyone else in the world, when you talk about infrastructure, you're talking about the publicly owned municipal underpinnings of our economy that you need transportation, water, sewer, electricity. You know, those are the basic things. And what supports those roads, bridges, dams, you know, water systems, 
sewer systems. But we're getting bills, you know, there was a pretty stripped down one. It was 1.2 trillion, which I, you know, thought, you know, let's go ahead, get, get it done. Let's do that. Don't argue about all the other stuff. We're getting bills that are overloaded and, and, and agenda driven. I mean, Bernie Sanders put forth one recently at $6 trillion. You know, and, and they're trying to, to do so much other that's not infrastructure. They want to do climate stuff. And they want to, you know, you know, try and change how you behave as part of this, this bill. No, let's, we need to talk to our, our state representatives and our federal representatives and tell them just get something through that keeps this country running and safe. That will do things like provide funds for a needed roadway project between Eugene and Benita. That'll keep traffic moving efficiently and make it safer. Bogged down in trying to throw a bunch of social programs and redefine social programs as infrastructure. Don't get bogged down trying to, to put climate incentives into this. Um, don't get bogged down trying to incentivize the purchase of certain vehicles over others. Um, you know, just stick with helping, you know, local government, particularly small rural depressed communities, keep their, at least their water safe to drink. I mean, you know, one only has to look at what happened to Colonial Pipeline with the cyber attack. Now, Colonial Pipeline's a big company with lots of staff and an IT department, and they still fell into that. There has been attempts at messing around with water and sewer systems to basically poison people. There is one attempt on a Florida system where they're going to turn, turn the, the chlorine way up to the point where it would have been toxic to drink. There was a, an attempt on a sewer system that would have released sewage water into a into a river. Um, you know, these cyber attacks are are going against all sorts of utilities. Do you think that a utility that is struggling as much as something like Mapleton Water District is has the bandwidth and the time to deal with cybersecurity at the same time? You want to put something in the Infrastructure Act that's useful? Put some dollars into helping small communities protect their infrastructure against cyber attack. Because I guarantee you, almost, you know, if you're not a community of, of you know, 50,000 or more, you don't have that bandwidth and capacity. You know, we really need to think about What's keeping America running? You know, that should be the focus when we talk these inf about infrastructure. We need to be talking to them about just getting a clean bill. That's a, you know, don't get tied up in in trying to, to make policy or or consider your your personal agendas. Just give us a clean infrastructure bill. 
It's what America needs. Everybody can agree on the fact that we need that infrastructure, that we need additional funding. I mean, the project that would make Highway 126 safe between Vanita and Eugene is a $200 million ask. Think about Beltline and the Willamette River Bridge, another $200 million plus project. Another place where we've had multiple accidents that have impacted people's lives. You know, we, we need to invest in our infrastructure in this country. And one of the things we have to do is we have to get people used to paying for that also in their rates. You know, there's been a reluctance because quite often, you know, you take, you know, the Mapleton Water Board, it's all customers of the Mapleton Water District, and they know every, you know, it's only a community of 600, so everybody knows everybody, and raising rates is something very difficult for those little districts to do, but people have to understand rates have to support not only paying for the operational cost of getting water, you know, cleaned in the pipe and to your house. It's also got to pay for upkeep of all the infrastructure to do that and renewal and replacement of that. So there, you know, we, we in America have undervalued and underpaid for our infrastructure as we go, and that's why we built up this huge bill. And at this point, only the federal government has the capacity to borrow enough money to try and start catching us up and and with their help. Of course, we'll all pay for that in taxes and inflation, but it I would rather see us pay for that than some of the, the craziness that came out in the American Recovery Program <laughs> you know, as part of the COVID relief bill. But not get involved in, in picking that apart. Let's just talk about infrastructure. Give us a clean, simple, non-controversial, support standard infrastructure bill. It should, you know, there shouldn't be controversy in supporting that, and there shouldn't be I'm holding it hostage because I also want this this bill that's going to, you know, basically, you know revamp our, our tax structure to, you know, reallocate wealth across this country or to, you know, make community college free, which I don't know how that gets tied to an infrastructure bill, but that's one of the things people are asking for. I'm not quite sure, you know, how we can justify that. We just need a straightforward, clean, simple infrastructure bill. And it won't happen unless federal and state representatives are hearing from you, the people. And to me, this weekend's tragic accident should be a clarion call for people. And the news of things like the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack should be a clarion call to people. We should be pestering the heck out of our federal and state representatives to push for pure infrastructure investment and infrastructure the way Merriam-Webster defines it, not some new definition that, you know, it, 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 it just happens nowadays where words get to be 
redefined to mean completely different things. This is a word that's always had a meaning and has and has and has been a word that people understood. Infrastructure is about those capital assets owned and maintained by public entities like cities and counties and water boards and districts across the country that keep the economy going because it's the roads Amazon uses to get their packages to your door. It's the water the restaurant uses to cook your food. It's the sewage treatment that makes it, you know, us capable to have the population we have without, you know, making ourselves all sick. You know, it's just, you know, something we need to invest in. But that's my, you know, my tie between tragedy and public policy. For too long, we've ignored this country's infrastructure, and we're having tragic results. I mean, a perfect example of, you know, of ignoring your basic underpinnings and not, you know, renewing and replacing is, you know, that, that building collapse in Florida. That's not true infrastructure. That was a building, but the owners of that building should have been doing more to invest in, in keeping that building safe, and they didn't. We need to be taking infrastructure investment seriously as a safety issue and as a, a basic economic issue. Our infrastructure fails in this country. Our economy fails. I mean, look what's happening still to this day as a result of COVID and the, what it's done to our supply chain. Infrastructure failures do that, can do that same thing, completely disrupt supply chains. If you don't think that, you know, hurts the economy, just take COVID. That was like a dry run of, of a major infrastructure failure. Kind of take what happened, you know, in the Southeast and, and the Atlantic coast with the Colonial Pipeline event. I think that will show up in our economic numbers when they start looking back at that month. I think it will. But I'm going to pause for a minute and remind folks this is a call-in show. And the Bose Nose Show comes to you live every Wednesday at 4 o'clock here on KRBN Internet News Talk Radio. But you can always call in, talk about what I'm talking about, talk about what you want to talk about, make a comment. You know, take us sideways. I've had candidates call in and want to, you know, do a little self-promo. Um, 646-721-9887. Just press one so we know you want to get it on the show. In fact, we have somebody that's called in just to listen today. Um, we do have people do that because not always do people have their computer connections and able to get to us on Facebook Live or you know, all the other platforms we have. So sometimes it's just as easy as calling in on your cell phone on 646-721-9887 and not pressing one, and you can just listen to the show on your phone. So it makes it kind of easy if you have hands-free in your car and you're getting ready to drive home or something like that, just you know, dial into the show and listen. <laughs> um, Robin may jump in there just to make sure you're listening. Uh, not want to get in on the show like you might have forgotten to press one. 
But uh, yeah, pressing one lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get on the show. So again, 646-721-9887 gets you in on the show. So, you know, we've talked about a few things. We've talked about um, the 4th of July, and we've talked about uh, infrastructure a little bit. And just kind of my my pet peeve in as a civil engineer, the, the redefinition of infrastructure and the failure of our federal government really to pass any sort of infrastructure bill over the last 15, 20 years. You know, they, they really haven't made any significant investments in, in, in a long time in our nation's infrastructure. Yeah, and we can look back on things like Flint, Michigan, um, and we can look back on, you know, bridge failures and, and other issues we've had. But that pales in comparison to what happens to a small town or a small community if they completely lose a piece of infrastructure. And, you know, I've, I've watched uh, Mapleton come close. I'm watching Blue River struggle with the fact that they've got to rebuild their infrastructure up there after the fire. And that now that they're, they're not only in need of rebuilding the water infrastructure, but they are in need of probably rebuilding a new sanitary system up there for their sewage as, as they try and rebuild. And you know, most of the homes there were really uh, using systems that weren't really necessarily functional because their lots are so small. Um, so there's impacts all around that would be helpful if they had some place for communities to go to get, you know, even partial funding to some of their, their infrastructure work and, and try and, you know, um, keep that going because, you know, it is a serious issue. And part of the, having infrastructure be upgraded and, and renewed and and in shape is it makes it more resilient. You know, all these folks that want to throw climate stuff in this bill, one of the biggest things is being resilient and ready for climate change no matter what it is. Whether it's as serious as people say or whether it's not, whether, you know, something happens, we go the other direction, it starts getting colder. No matter what, and under-maintained, you know, poor condition infrastructure, whether it's a water system, sewer system, electric grid, transportation, is not going to withstand changes in climate and, and stress as well as one that's maintained. So if you, you want to talk about climate strategies, Investing in infrastructure is a dang good resilience and, and mitigation of, of impact. And when you think about which communities have the worst infrastructure available to them, it tends to be all those communities, the folks that are concerned about social justice, they're served by some of the worst infrastructure in our, in our country, some of the least well-maintained, and the most in need of investment. So getting something through for infrastructure helps everybody. But now, yeah, we got to throw things in there. And I'm, I'm going to pick on, you know, Congressman DeFazio's pet bill, the Invest in America 
act a little bit because it looks good maybe on the surface somewhat, but it is wildly overbalanced in investing in, in mass transit, which is highly underutilized already in this country. What we do use, it's less than two and a half percent of our total trips in this country are by mass transit. Um, but it's got that in there. And in, in addition, it has subsidies for states that do well on climate goals and penalties for states that don't do well. And then it has in it, buried in it, things that are going to harm our freight rail system in this country. As it stands right now, people should understand one of the reasons why we're having such an issue with things like, you know, high prices on things is, is our, our logistics have been totally buggered up in this country by um, our freight system is, is, you know, fell apart for a while during COVID and we haven't really been able to rebuild it. Uh, you know, one of the things is we don't have enough truck drivers in this country. Well, what takes a lot of trucks off the road? Freight rail. What's buried in this bill? A union power grab in the freight rail system. Buried in this bill is a requirement that all freight trains have to have a minimum of a two-person crew, even though they've automated these, these systems, these rail systems to the point they don't need that second person on the on the train unions have gotten through to some of the congress and they put into this this invest in america act a requirement that's going to drive up the labor cost and make freight rail more inefficient because then you're also talking about trying to get you know staff to to freight cars, you know, after their eight-hour shifts in the middle of the country somewhere, you get two people instead of one, you know, and all that, you know, it just gets adds to those. And it also doesn't let Mexican trains get to the rail yard in Texas. It wants them to stop at the border, which has been a huge bottleneck to moving a lot of produce and stuff. And if you've been to the grocery store lately, you know how produce prices have gone from Mexico into America, and they're making them stop at the border and replace the crews with American Union crews. Just for the couple miles into the freight yard, it causes a huge backup at the border for freight getting into America from Mexico. But this bill basically makes that um, you know, law that you have to do that. What does those union wants, have, what are they doing in an infrastructure bill? What's that got to do with whether or not your, your drinking water is safe? You know, what's that got to do with whether the bridge you're driving over is going to survive an earthquake or whether it might just collapse because of the traffic loading on it? And whether it's going to be weight limited and trucks won't be able to cross it soon and, and that's going to hurt freight move mobility. They just can't seem to come up with a straightforward infrastructure-only bill, and infrastructure, as Merriam-Webster defines it, and get it through. 
I mean, without holding it hostage over some other social bill or holding it hostage over anything else, we need to hold these people's feet to the fire and say, you know, you are possibly costing people's lives and livelihoods by holding up this bill over your wants on other issues. It needs to be a clean infrastructure bill. And, and you know, we need to be contacting our congresspeople, our senators, and telling them that. Because we're going to need $200 million to fix Highway 126. We're going to need more than $200 million to fix Beltline. Well, I'm hearing the music, which is... You know, Robin's way of reminding me I should be having my eye on the clock. I got it all, got rolling on a rant there. <laughs> Can you tell that my civil engineering background really kind of gets me excited about infrastructure? Well, we'll be back next week with Bo's Nose Show, coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira and the Bozovich Poodle Ranch. Um, and you know, we'll be back next week, 4 o'clock Pacific, our usual time here on Caribbean Internet News Talk Radio. Thank you for listening, and have a great week.